the incomparable. Number 437, December 2018. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I am your host, Jason Snellen. In this episode, we are going to go back to Star Trek, one of the things I love very much. And in this, the holiday season, I've chosen a movie that, I don't know, it feels just kind of warm and fuzzy and wonderful and even a little bit holiday-like for some reason. It did come out during the holidays in 1986, and it's Star Trek Four. The Voyage Home, the one with the whales, and uh, I love it, and it's delightful and fun and nice, and we are going to talk about it. Now, some people may know that we, uh, didn't you cover this before? And the answer is no, The Incomparable hasn't covered it before. Now, some guy named Scott McNulty covered it on his podcast, Random Trek, and, uh, you know, but that doesn't count. Anyway, Scott McNulty is here. Hi, Scott. <laughs> uh, that episode is not canon, so this this will replace it. It's not in the incomparable <laughs> canon. It's just in the in the random track canon, which is totally different. And uh, also on that episode was Tony Sindelar, but we're going to talk about this movie again because Tony loves his whales and doesn't like it when people say mean things about the whales. Hi, Tony. Hi. When would anyone say a bad thing about a whale? I don't know what that yeah. would, what would happen then. Now, Defocused also covered Star Trek IV, and yet Joe Steele is here. Hello, Joe Rosenstiel. Uh, welcome to the <laughs> canonical, incomparable episode about Star Trek IV. Thank you. Uh, I'm glad I could bring over exactly the number of people who care about Star Trek from Defocused to represent. <laughs> I was invited to be on that episode, but it was late at night, and I'm not good at that. So, uh, yes, I, I'm going to have uh, more comments later about the whaling ship at the end. And also the stock footage of whales, but we'll get there. We'll get there. Also joining us, people who have not appeared on an incomparable podcast about Star Trek Four yet, but now they are there. Gene McDonald is here. Hello. Hello, Jason. Thanks for having me. In fact, we are, we're planning to do a Star Trek Four on Sestracast next week. It's just a total coincidence. Amazing. It's amazing. Well, it's all the clones that are in Star Trek. Yeah. For um, also Chip Sutterth. Hello. This week in time travel, being a podcast about time travel, uh, we're going to do a special about this uh, next week as well. Um, I think yeah. I maybe ought to tell my co-host about that. I, I mean, really, this with a title like "This Week in Time Travel," the Doctor Who season just ended, so you might as well just dive on <laughs> into Star Trek Four. I say it's logical, as Mister Spock would say, for you to do that. And we're going to use a colorful metaphor later. Moises Chuyan is also here. Hello, Admiral. Are you sure this isn't the time for a colorful metaphor? Um, <laughs> forgive Moises. Uh, he was in Berkeley in the 60s and did a little too much LDS. <laughs> Latter-day Saints gets <laughs> yep, you every time. That's right. Little, little, I, I, I'd like to know that that's the Mormons. Uh, it's fine. It's fine. Whatever. All right. Star Trek 4, 1986. We had Star Trek 2. It's very serious. Spock dies at the end. Star Trek 3, it's uh, got the wrong Savic in it and they bring Spock back to life in the end and Robin Curtis in Star Trek 4 is like literally in one scene and they're like well you didn't work out goodbye <laughs> and they go off <laughs> but uh, so anyway Star Trek 4 comes out and the production of it was fascinating because I, I think Jeffrey Katzenberg is is uh, quoted in a few places as saying that the concept of this movie was either going to be really great or a complete disaster and it turned out to be a very successful movie uh, commercially probably the most successful Star Trek movie. Didn't make as much money as Star Trek The Motion Picture, but it didn't cost as much. Uh, maybe until the J.J. Abrams Star Trek, but certainly of the original cast, I think the most commercially successful. Maybe not... Everybody remembers Star Trek 2 as kind of like the critical classic, but Star Trek 4 was a, a broad spectrum, mainstream, like it was 1986, I was 15, no, I was 16, just turned 16, and like everybody went and saw the Star Trek 
Shrek movie because it was this fun <laughs> movie with the whales in it. And uh, and so it's it's uh, it's a comedy. It doesn't really have a villain to speak of. There, there is. Uh, it's it's unusual in so many ways, um, but it's a it's a fun movie. So we're going to talk about it. Request permission to draw a specious comparison between it and the most recent season of Doctor Who. Oh, interesting, interesting. That it's a it's a crowd pleaser. It, it's a crowd pleaser. There's no overwhelming big villain kind of thing going on. Um, it is light and fluffy and mass appeal. Uh, and I think. A lot of hardcore Star Trek fans are Star Trek II, the Wrath of Khan fans, and this was the one that they loved in China. This is the one that went that went worldwide. This is the this, one this that will, this is the one that my mom likes. This is the one where yeah. you mentioned Star Trek and 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 random people who don't like Star Trek are like, oh, the one with the whales the because one with the whales. everybody yeah. don't you hate it when your mom likes your Star everybody Trek. Everybody loves it. Well, my mom never really understood the Star Trek things, but she's like, oh, the right like everybody uh really got got into it. i think there's there's something to that the only uh disagreement that i had with your your notion of there not being a villain is that i think it actually ties into what um uh, uh what chip was saying is that the the big bad as it were is is uh bad stuff and doing the wrong thing hmm. uh you know humanity itself it's as the bad guy. <laughs> once again the real villain is us <laughs> because we we, we uh, ruined everything and the whales went extinct in the 21st century. To to your point about it being the Star Trek that even your mom will like. I uh, meant literally my mom. <laughs> <laughs> well, literally my mom okay. loved this one too right. because it wasn't so heavily into the weeds. My, my little brother who was autistic uh, was into Star Trek, into Star Wars, and specifically it was Star Trek 2 and Star Trek 4 that he loved watching the most. And my mother initially enjoyed the movie and then when he started watching and watching and watching it and repeating all of the various colorful metaphor bits that are all all funny i mean they're all funny they're all funny um she realized uh, maybe star trek was in fact a double-edged sword <laughs> all right that's fair that's fair tony mm-hmm. uh, obviously i wanted you here because we did an episode where uh, somebody who i won't name said some untoward things about your whales and you had to defend yourself. Uh, yeah, I, was the context that this was the the worst Star Trek movie? I, I don't is, remember, and I kind of don't want to go over, back and listen. Maybe to it was it. most overrated. That that seems more plausible. I just remember um, that you were you were upset. By I was it. a guest. That sounds like me. Yeah, <laughs> I'm pro whale. Boy, this would be the wrong episode to be on if you're anti whale. Well, I don't know. For, all right, if, is anyone here anti whale? You have to you have to say if we ask. Um, they, they are jerks of the sea. They are, I think you're thinking of both dolphins and sharks, Scott. Oh right, oh, yeah. Um, no, I'm pro whale. Uh, I, I I don't know if I've ever disclosed this on a podcast, but here we go. Uh, when I was like six, my dad signed me up for a membership in Greenpeace, which I think probably means I am not allowed to ever run for office. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, this is just the Star Trek movie that I, I love and enjoy, that I've watched many, many times. Even, uh, I mean, I think I watched this several times before I had seen more than a handful of the original series episodes. I've seen them all now. Uh, I just love how kind of light and friendly and happy this one is. I love them bumbling around San Francisco. Uh, they Today, they kind of remind me of a role-playing group. Hi, we're San Francisco inspectors. Um, and <laughs> yeah. we do not have a plan. We're idiots. We're completely out of our element. Presumably, we could have spent like 30 minutes reading about what's going on here and have not done that. <laughs> but our charm, our charm will carry us through. Even befriending a whale scientist who should really know better than Indeed. to pick up weirdos, weirdos in San Francisco. 
know. Um, <laughs> so it's the charm and the humor of this movie that really sticks with me. And I have seen it far more times than any other Star Trek movie. Uh, and I, you know, I, I just, I like the chemistry of the crew in this one. I think sometimes I'm disappointed when I go to other Star Trek, uh, original series material and it's not there yet because here is one of the places that it really kind of mm-hmm. crystallizes. Um, and like, this is the Star Trek that I want all original series Star Trek to be. And it's not always. Yeah. Gene, what made you want to, uh, revisit Star Trek four? Honestly, it's been so long and I, I just knew it was the one about the whales. And I thought, <laughs> isn't this mm-hmm. one of the bad ones? Like I know that for <gasps> the, the even numbered years, ones are good. And I, I, but I thought, but that one has whales in but it. Four like, is an could, even number. So what is it? What's uh, going how, on? <laughs> you know what's going on. So yeah, definitely. I was, uh, I, 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 I was intrigued, and I, I, I read up on it a little. And I said, oh, oh, right. People love this one. I mean, I had seen it, but I didn't see it when it came out. Uh, again, it was from that dark period of graduate school where uh, yeah. you could not possibly go to a Star Trek movie uh, for fun. Um, and not have all your peers like look down their noses at you. So, yeah, I'm. I'm uh, I was excited to start watching it and realize, oh yeah, this is fun. It's yeah. very fun. And I have to say, I also was happy to see, um, what's her name, Catherine Hicks. Oh yeah, is in it. And so you know, a thing I'm. I am do keep under wraps sometimes, but I was a huge fan of Seventh Heaven. And Which was with Catherine Hicks and Stephen Collins, Decker from Star exactly. Trek, the motion picture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that, it was because of that. Exactly. It's all, it's all the, Star Trek happening on Seventh Heaven. It's all Star Trek. But I loved that. Um, I felt like this movie had that Seventh Heaven vibe. Oh, so, you know, that sort of ha- happy and, you know, there's obviously there's challenges to be overcome, but the team, the friends, the fam will work it out. <laughs> all right. Uh, Chip, what's your what's your background with Star Trek Four? I hung around with a group of friends. I was so young back then. This this movie is so long ago. I'm so old. Um, but I hung around a group of friends that practiced their whale song after seeing this movie. <laughs> oh my god! Um, yeah, just in case, yeah. just in case. Yeah. If the, yeah, if the so, probe comes and the whales are extinct, we can make the sounds. Yeah, <laughs> we were deep. We were committed. And this was a time when I was fully nerding out. I was in high school. I was getting the DC comics that tied into uh, Star Trek and had some continuity stuff going on where they tried to tell stories in between Star Trek 3 and Star Trek 4. It was uh, really, yeah. really and, confusing. And 2 and 3, too. I, re- I read that comic, too, Chip. And, and one of the things that really blew me away is that they picked up Star Trek 2 after Star Trek two and told stories with spock being dead yeah. and then as they led into star trek three they started dropping all these hints that something was going on with dr mccoy and i and then i saw star trek three and i was like oh, like it was they did a really good job of like trying to fill in the gaps where the movies theoretically are all like one immediately after yeah, another but one the DC right after comics the sort of like wedged in there and told a bunch of stories in between the movies yeah totally it, exactly so i've i have a i had a lot of nostalgia i have a lot of nostalgia for how i felt about star trek back then and when i watched these movies in real time, they all felt like the holy trilogy of Star oh. Trek. You know, they the storylines did flow for one from the other. I mean, Star Trek Four begins with thirty minutes, arguably too long, of setup and establishment and explaining to all the overseas audiences who these characters are, how right. they got here, how, why the they had a starship that blew up, all this other good stuff. But it's all part of this 
largely undivided story. And yet, Star Trek II, Star Trek III, Star Trek IV, when you watch them in hindsight, they're completely different styles of film. Star Trek III is such a mess. Um, And this one, it's the conclusion of a trilogy with, again, no big bad except for us. It ends with a crash landing and the big... The big denouement is the opening of a hatch. Yeah, there's there's frolicking, <laughs> frolicking in the water that happens, and, and, frolic, and, and frolicking in the water. It, it, whereas in my nostalgic haze, I looked at Star Trek Two, Star Trek Three, Star Trek Four, and I'm like, oh yeah, it's all the Wrath of Khan. No, this is this is something so much frothier, and I'm actually a l- little hard pressed to to decide whether. It, it held up for me upon a rewatch. Hmm. Interesting. Maybe it's all great in San Francisco and the stuff at the t- at the head end and the tail end. Maybe it all falls apart a little bit. There's for a me. lot of know. continuity. There's a lot of connective tissue at the beginning and the end that that this movie does. Every time I watch it, I am struck by the fact that, as Chip says, uh, there's like half an hour that is okay. Well, we were on Vulcan. In Star Trek Three, so we got to start there, and we got to explain. Here's, why. A, here's a matte painting of a bird of prey. Exactly, and Savik is not going to be on in the movie, so we got to say goodbye to her, and we've got to and see, Vulcans with ear shaped hats. We got to we got to establish that Spock is okay, but a little bit goofy because it'll be funnier if he's kind of goofy when we get to the rest of the movie, and you know, like they they have to do all that work, and it does. You know, it, two, three, and four happen all in a row, so there's this strange kind of continuity that is there. And, but it does feel a little bit like, uh, you know, it's it's like a TV series recap or as what we said on the Random Trek episode is this is a movie where there's there's several minutes where the characters watch the previous films. <laughs> Jason, 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 the beautiful thing about Klingon security footage is the uh, the camera, the camera cuts that they do in it and the panning. It's very Klingons well directed. Klingons are people. All right. They they take it seriously. They, they you know, work the Klingon in. high council, they sprung for the, the they sprung for yeah. Adobe Premiere and they're going to use it. Yeah, You're just right. lucky there's not a star wipe in here. They used Telosian technology. It's just like the menagerie. They were watching yeah. the cage. Mm. He doesn't want to, the ambassador doesn't want to look foolish in front of the the Federation Council. So you got to put on uh, a show, took, right? You don't want yeah, people exactly. to get bored and not pay attention to all the things about Kirk being like pro genocide yeah, or whatever he's doing. You have to do the, the traditional Klingon bloviating like an overacting yeah. Shakespearean actor. Guys, that's what one of the beauties of this movie. It's like two movies in one. It's a sa- what a savings. <laughs> that's right. You see the parts of Star Trek three that matter, uh, and you, so you can skip it. Just go to watch Star Trek two, and then watch Star Trek four. And you're fine. <laughs> there yeah. You go. <laughs> yeah. This is basically a two hour movie that's actually a ninety minute movie with a thirty minute sort of continuity bridge for all of the story. Because at the end too, it's similarly like they're like now we have to have the trial, and uh, oh, it's mm-hmm. kind of a sham because Kirk is just going to get put back on the uh, enterprise. Prize and you know, no, he's not going to get the Excelsior at the end. Not to skip even, to the even, end or anything. Even by the yeah. standards of sham trials, it's pretty, it's pretty <laughs> shammy. I mean, like there's there's no one there. There's no voting. There's just the one guy, right. well, president of the federation. The president of the federation like, hey, has put his thumb on the scales pretty hard there. <laughs> yeah, I have found you not guilty for reasons. Sorry, 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 sorry. Space reasons. <laughs> the whole first part, the Klingon uh, guy, who's John Shuck, right, is like mm-hmm. using his best. Kind of lawyer skills as space. I'm just a country space Klingon lawyer. <laughs> so he does all of that, and 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 it's like, yeah, he's twisting it. And Sarek is there to be like, no, you're stupid because you're a Klingon. And he's like, oh, but you're a Vulcan. We can't trust you. 
You're just a puppet of the Federation and all of that. But at the end, I imagine the Klingon ambassador watching what happens with Kirk and everybody getting off scot-free. And he's just like, oh, I'm so angry at you right now, right? Like, I told you it was a sham. I knew this would happen. It's so unfair. Like, yep, that's true. Especially because you have to imagine in Klingon culture, like being a Klingon lawyer is not... You know, it's not going to be right. This this was his one chance at redemption, and he blew it. We've seen Um, what Klingon law looks like in Star Trek Six, right? With Michael mm, Dorn as as the other Worf, as old Grandpa Worf, and literally he's like, "I object," and they're like, "Whatever, there's no law here, forget (laughs) it." And then they just do what they want to do. So you know, Klingon lawyers just like the Federation because they do what they want to do. I guess so. It's a harsh lesson we've learned here, which is people in power are just going to do what they want to get the result Mm -hmm. they want. Kirk is horrible for jurisprudence everywhere he goes it's just wreckage <laughs> yeah he he ends up not getting the Excelsior which is the fancier bigger better ship but he'll end up getting the ship that he actually wants yes and so he literally loses absolutely nothing other than yes. rank and he yeah. kind of hated that rank from the instant that he was given it in the first movie it's true although to be fair he did save the planet so yeah that's, that's kind extenuating of, circumstances again <laughs> yeah yeah was, but it's still like like they don't even have a space lawyer on their behalf to argue for that it's just like nah. you know the federation president is just kind of like yeah he cooks the books and it's fine so um <laughs> one of the reasons i want to talk about this movie too um before before i break down the plot a little bit is is the score by leonard rosenman it is his only star trek score it is unlike any other star trek score it's also one of the reasons that i think this movie is kind of christmassy is that with the yes. ding dong ding dong <laughs> ding dong ding dong <laughs> it, it seems very much like much of the score is the lost score of a Christmas special. Uh, plus yes. there's j- jazz from from the Wasn't the Yellow Jackets? The Yellow Jackets. Yeah, that's right. There's some of that in there too. It's a funny it's a funny score. Joe, I know that you you have thoughts about uh about uh Star Trek scores. This is a it's a weird one. Uh yeah, this is I I I don't really like this one at all. Uh it doesn't really sound like Star Trek as you said. Uh it doesn't integrate with uh the other prior movies either from James Horner or from Jerry Goldsmith and the couple of quoted pieces of original music that are in there were done begrudgingly. Uh Leonard Rosenman really didn't have his his heart and soul in that. Um he also kind of reuses this later on uh when he goes and does uh the sequel to robocop um which is awful sequel um the the worst sequel that irvin kirshner ever directed but uh that and one of the worst things that frank miller has ever done yeah that that one also if you listen to these two scores back to back you're just like oh this is the same thing only they chant robocop over and over um in the theme song for that one but it's 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 not it doesn't really work for me. Um, I get that they that uh, Leonard Nimoy didn't want uh, it to sound like symphonic uh, Star Trek scores, like they're on an away mission or something when they're in San Francisco. He wanted something that sounded more contemporary, but it it, it is really strange and it dates the movie in an odd way. Mm-hmm. And I know it's jumping ahead a bit, but when we get to the chase scene where oh, Chekhov is trying to escape, uh. and it's almost Benny Hill. Yes. <laughs> There's a ch- part of the Chekhov chase is like a pastiche on Russian composers. It's like he's running around the, the U.S.'s Enterprise Naval Carrier, and it's like, it's like the Tetris music is playing. And so that's, and I, that, I think that's kind of funny because it's like he's Russian, and so we're playing Russian y things. But when they get to the hospital, 
It is it it is from the director of Three Men and a Baby. It is zany comedy chase music. And, I love that and, zany comedy and chase music. And that's when, when my wife turned to me and was like, "This is wacky music for a Star Trek movie." I said, it is. It's wacky. I love it. No wackier than when 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 Spock is in the ta- is in the tank with George and Gracie <laughs> and William Shatner. If he has, if oh, he God. hasn't already chewed every bit of scenery in existence, like the way that he mugs, <laughs> yes. what what he does in pantomime is what the score does during the hospital chase. I, I love that scene though, where it's just all we're hearing is uh, <laughs> is the the description, the most boring. It's like, and we're moving, and we're moving, and it's like <laughs> this is this is when we meet our friend, the whale scientist Catherine Hicks, and um and in the background, uh, Captain Kirky is losing it. <laughs> He's like, I don't have any dialogue. The camera's on me. I've got to do something. He is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like, I I think, I think it's an appropriate moment because there's no dialogue and everybody else is just watching it. And, and you know, because we know and they are seeing it. And then you finally get the old lady who's like, maybe he's talking to that whale there, which is a great, by the way, that woman, I looked her up on IMDb. She had a career that spanned about 50 years, maybe 40 years. And for about 35 of those years, she was just playing old ladies. Like she literally was playing an old lady in something in the seventies and in like the nineties, she just was, she was your go-to for an old lady. She's in the max headroom pilot as well. In fact, I recognized her. I was like, I think that's the same lady as in the max. Headroom. <laughs> so it totally is. And she's like, she plays an old lady who has one funny line and then is never seen again. And she built a whole career on that. So good for good, her. Good for her. But, uh, but yeah, that's, that's that moment. Maybe he, maybe he's talking to that man there. <laughs> okay. And meanwhile, Captain, Kirk is completely like what is Spock doing and it's funny it's 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 uh it's good okay let's back up we'll, we'll start at the beginning a space probe <laughs> what a, a space probe that looks kind of like the probe in the doomsday machine and then it's just kind of a gonna say it's a yeah. log that flies through space so a giant cylindrical <laughs> monolith is yeah, flying a, through tootsie roll <laughs> Yeah, or Tootsie Roll, sure, that's good. Um, and it's got like a beam that has a little ball at the end of it that like sends out messages. Um, and it turns off all the spaceships that it goes past and it shuts the doors of, or it locks the doors closed of the space dock. So they're useless. They can't do anything. Jason, is it seeking to come to Earth to merge with the creator? <laughs> well, w- w- it's a good question, Chip. Um, but unfortunately, the Enterprise isn't isn't there because it got blown up, so that it can't save the day. And instead, it is sending out this message that is uh, shutting off all the power on planet Earth, and they have to send out the planetary distress call, which the president of the Federation doesn't want to do, but he finally does. That there, don't approach the Earth. There is something bad happening here with some crazy space probe. Um, and uh, meanwhile, on Vulcan, we do get, as we've mentioned before, everybody is like, well, we patched up the ship and we looked at the manual, which is translated using Google Translate from Klingon, probably, but we can make it work. <laughs> we can figure it out. And Scotty has replaced the food packs because eating <laughs> eating the bloodworm <laughs> casserole was giving Scotty a bad no stomach. You don't want reconstituted bloodworm. You no. want it fresh. Get, that'll, that'll, yeah. Yeah. So they replaced it with Vulcan food packs, maybe. I don't know. Mm, they maybe, delicious. you may regret that decision. Decision, Scotty. I don't know. Um, and they uh, they say goodbye to Savic because again, uh, the recasting of that character didn't work out. And it's okay though. In her scene, she really sells it, right? Oh my god, it's so bad. It's so it's bad. It's not great. It's She's kind of. Good. It's he, probably one I of did the not more tell you parts about this movie. Uh, how yeah. David met his fate. He saved us all, Captain. Oh God. 
I watched this on uh, the Blu-ray, and so I watched the special, uh, you know, bonus material, and they had an interview with the the two writers of the screenplay that no one ever talks about, Steve Mearson and Peter Crikes, uh, and they said, "Here's our secret: uh, they left Savick on uh, Vulcan because she's pregnant, pregnant with, with Spock's, Spock's baby." baby. Yeah. And I said, you should never tell anyone that's it because that's a horrible idea. And that's why no one knows who you are. <laughs> yeah, when Pon Far goes really, really wrong. Yeah, um. yeah, that's not that's not so good. We do get the, we do get a great scene that is revisited in multiple Star Treks after this, which is Spock being tested, um, and he's he's asked to answer a whole bunch of uh, various scientific and trivia questions about the galaxy. <laughs> the Vulcan GRE. Yeah, Spock yeah. is training yeah. up for Quiz Bowl Vulcan. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly Vulcan right. Quizzo. But his mother has slipped in a sneaky human question, which is, how do you feel? This is, um, the J.J. Abrams Star Trek quotes this uh, pretty directly in the scene where young Spock is being tested on and then gets beat up by bullies jerks oh, yeah falcons yeah. are jerks as we all know yeah. he doesn't have the sweet typeface in the jj abrams movies though mm. that's true that's true it's all it's all very good and and also this movie in the we, we we can pick apart when scotty uses a mac keyboard to in about five seconds generate a very complicated <laughs> um a molecular model for transplant uh Jason, transparent he's a aluminum. miracle worker but spock, he's just better at computers than you spock so. also uses a keypad basically a numeric keypad to input complex yeah. chemical formula <laughs> yeah in there are like test. four buttons on that keypad. <laughs> He's got text, ex- text expander. We get Jane Wyatt back from the original series. She appears. This is her other appearance as Amanda Spock's yeah. mom. Who and she gets. To, she has snuck in there. How do you feel? Because this is her reminder to her resurrected son uh, that he needs to integrate his Vulcan and uh, and human. I think the implication here is that he's kind of got the the logic back, but he needs to connect with his human side and. And kind of put it all together and she's trying to prod him and remind him of that he needs to get his groove back yeah, he she, uh, she does an excellent job in the scene but uh one thing i notice now as an adult rather than when i saw this as a kid on a pan and scan four by three tape um is that uh the cinematography of this is really lovely so you get uh the the rack focus back from from spock to amanda who's walked in the doorway behind uh and she's lit beautifully uh there's light from outside uh coming in into this uh uh, beautiful room it's so much better than star trek 3 uh the cinematography (laughs) is great um although it is interesting that it's a cinematographer for flash dance so that was probably not not something that um i think i had anticipated when Hmm. i went to go look that up later yeah what i what i read was that you know leonard nimoy who directed star trek 3 here he wanted to uh, he, I think he maybe recognized his limitations and the limitations of Star Trek Three, and so he brought in the cinematographer and basically said, "Please do a good job because I don't know what I'm doing." Essentially, and so then the cinematographer uh, did a good job, I think, with with this, especially these scenes at the beginning there. And it's a nice, it's just a really nice scene. I, we can complain about the the stuff where they're basically just watching Star Trek Two and Star Trek Three uh, later when there's the the kind of the Klingon stuff, but but here. Uh, this is a this is a really nice moment. I think this is one of the uh, unsung uh, gr- great scenes in Star Trek Four is Spock and his mom and her uh, kind of uh, setting him up for the journey he's going to take in this ep- in this uh, movie. Yeah, and I think search for search for Spock being Nimoy's training wheels for directing something of this scale because he he directed a little bit of TV, but part of his deal for coming back was that he got to direct Star Trek Three. You can get that as a get, but you don't necessarily get your choice of cinematographer, your choice of this, your choice of that. And in 
in coming in and, and directing this one, uh, it this one as compared to Star Trek three, uh, you know, I don't have anything scientific or uh, hard evidence to cite, but it feels like he got to call more of his own shots for this. And this is part of, you know, how Leonard Nimoy director who did three men and a baby and a couple other things after this. Um, this is this is where he he felt comfortable, you know, putting together his team and the, um, you know, previously on Star Trek chunk that I don't think he really had much of a choice in any way as to whether it got included or not. Um, that aside, I think the whole movie as a production feels like it's somebody who has been working in the industry for multiple decades by then, who is finally getting the, the true opportunity to really helm, helm the ship and run things the way they want to run things. Yeah. It sounds like uh script wise too, that basically um, Harv Bennett wrote the bridging stuff on either end who is the longtime kind of producer of these movies for star trek he produced star trek 2 and star trek 3 um and then nicholas meyer who did star trek 2 um he wrote the he did the rewrite of the center section and that's kind of interesting too because basically they split the it's like you tell the fun you do the funny story where they're there and i'll do all the kind of continuity on the other end and then they kind of stuck it together which is what a weird uh history this this thing has i feel like nimoy being in charge is really why we get that kind of camaraderie and the crew being the crew as we mentioned earlier like that's that's to me where that comes where, where that not only is present but is something that that is the reason that people like this one so much because you actually get really good interplay and they're not just there to play their stationary roles in the crew so we talk about the crew interaction here and it starts on vulcan so i'll bring it up now and it goes through the whole movie which is this is a screenplay written by somebody who knows that the biggest comedy gold one could get (laughs) out of star trek is by having dr mccoy be (laughs) as grumpy as possible and it starts early and it just keeps going and it's hilarious like they're like oh man dr mccoy there's that moment later where uh kirk is about to order a time warp and mccoy like puts out a finger and he's like no you just wait a minute (laughs) like nope it's it's too late but he he and he's digging at spock the whole way it's like this man was just dead (laughs) he just Mm. came back and you're like yeah i'm gonna give him uh i'm gonna give him the business now i'm gonna make his life difficult (laughs) it's amazing it's so good you know in his defense he's been dragged to vulcan you know he doesn't like transporting and now you're going to make him time warp doesn't want to be in this klingon Spaceship. I guess they made him sign on to this, but he didn't sign on to this. Well, they sucked. They they sucked Spock's Katra right. out of his brain. Yes. Right, yeah. like he had to come. Yeah, he had no choice. Yeah. So he had a rough few days. You can see you can see on his face that he's constantly thinking back to that scene in Star Trek: The Motion Picture where he's fully bearded, has the open like seven buttons shirt, yeah. the medallion around the neckla- his neck. I could never yes. not forget that medallion. That medallion is, is, is with me always. My life used to be so good and carefree, yeah. and I was just, you know, hanging out in bars, you know, just chilling. Damn it, Spock. Yeah. Right? And then, so he's just cranky mm-hmm. the whole time. It's great. You know what, Jason? Here's, he, he's reasserting his personality now that Spock is not in there, right? I so see. The, I see. Yeah. He's got room to be him. Also, yeah, he had right. Spock in his in his head for uh, a couple, for like a movie. Yeah. And so he's cranky not... about that, too. He's like, damn it, Spock. Now I know, yeah. now I really know how to get your goat, because you, <laughs> <laughs> you were in my head for a, for a whole movie. Uh, I, I do like that uh, he doesn't immediately like lean into Spock. There's that moment where uh, Spock comes onto the bridge and he sits down at a station and uh, no. McCoy's, McCoy is just asking him about 
the the experience of of you know coming back from the dead and right. uh spock says it's impossible to discuss without a uh, frame of reference and uh you you get his this is the moment where he's just like all right well forget it like i'm not gonna die to discuss your insights <laughs> no. on death um and uh and he and he loses his his, his cool uh and you get uh grumpy prodding uh cranky mccoy for the rest of it and i love that he he's cranky at kirk too because one of the interesting things that happens as they take off and then throughout the rest of the adventure is that kirk is so happy to have spock back right and and mm-hmm. he is do he is missed he's spock's biggest cheerleader now that spock's mom is still back on vulcan now it's kirk's job to be like you're gonna do this spock you're gonna figure it out it's gonna be great and that and that and mccoy is like are you kidding me he was dead he's lost his marbles don't trust him and that leads to several scenes including i think the the one that i really like is when um kirk and spock are headed back into the back of the ship and mccoy is like somebody's got to keep an eye on him because he doesn't trust kirk at all he's he figures kirk's just gonna be like yeah spock do whatever you want mccoy's like "Uh uh-uh no 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 that's not gonna happen i'm gonna i'm gonna be over your shoulder with a raised eyebrow the entire time it's great he his bearing the whole movie is am i the only sane person here what is wrong with all of you people (laughs) it's true it's true i mean is it supposed to be that they are the only ones on this klingon ship uh it i mean it seemed like yeah it's it that's it it's just the the seven people yeah so so mccoy doesn't have to run a sick bay no because you know (laughs) no his best job is to keep an eye on the captain and (laughs) yeah and and the recently resurrected guy who's running around he's the kind of man who needs a job to keep him busy when he is idle he's you know (laughs) it's not it's not good nobody's bleeding and dying i need to do something to prevent people from bleeding and dying so i guess i'll keep all of these limbs from doing crazy stuff (laughs) he asks a a very reasonable question maybe we shouldn't travel back in time and and fiddle with things wait wait a minute like, no, no, no. There, surely there's a better a better way than the plot yeah. of this movie. And they're like, nope, this is the plot of the movie. We got to do it. Sorry. Sorry, but it's... A, no, I think it's it's, it's, by profession, Dr. McCoy is a doctor. His hobby is needling Spock. So if he has no medicine to perform, he's just going to needle Spock. That's what he's going to do because that's, that's his role. That's he, lo- he loves that. He's like, oh, you're so cold, Vulcan, whatever. Like, and and that that comes through. It's 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 great. But they do, yes, they go back to Earth, and ag- once again, these people are the only ship in the quadrant that can save the day. Um, they realize. Um, I'd like to think that somebody on Earth has already figured out that it's a humpback whale song, but they've lost all power and the ability to transmit, so they can't. Uh, but they, the people on the Klingon bird of prey, figure out that they can. Uh, the sound of this uh, this probe being transmitted under the water when compensated for for water and salinity because the salt water makes it sound different i don't know that's a line in the movie that always baffled me it's it's totally science, it's science. it sounds like a humpback whale it is it's different density of water but yeah i don't whatever yeah, you also get that sweet uh, little dj display that over <laughs> has when she's when she's processing it i like that it's a good yeah. moment for her you get a really good look at how on point her nails are too. Like she's been through a lot and she still makes sure those nails look good. And Spock has like a CD-ROM of all the animals that he goes through. <laughs> Very slowly. Yeah. No, not that. That he has to go into another room to check out. It's not a coyote. No, not, yeah. not, not a marmot. Oh God, this would take forever. I would like to point out like the little, the tiniest of cameos I think that you can have in a movie they did have for, for, Nurse Chapel right. and uh, Yeoman Rand, uh, who Commander are now Rand, both commanders, yes. Commanders <laughs> Chapel and Commander Rand in Starfleet. You know, as all 
hell is breaking loose and everything's going down. And they show the two of them, like each for about five seconds. So they go back in time, despite Dr. McCoy's protests to the contrary, (laughs) because where are you going to get whales other than in the past? And then in, so we go back to the the time when the movie was made. It's very convenient. I was watching the (laughs) 1986 scenes now thinking, man, look at all those old cars. You would have to, it would be so expensive to shoot that now. But fortunately they shot it in 1986 where they were readily available. <laughs> That's true. Mm-hmm. But, but we, we time travel through an art student's movie. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh God. Okay. I'm sorry. I skipped over our 2001, just mind blowing. Wow. Oh, so, so when they go through time, they do the slingshot effect, which is from the TV series. And they, uh, and then there is a uh, mind blowing kind of vision scene where the, mm. the various, kind of like 3d heads of the of the enterprise crew appear we hear dialogue from later in the movie because it's ooh, it's time travel it's weird we're hearing what's going to happen but it hasn't happened yet there's a whale sort of a a space whale and then there's like a puppet human puppet body that floats around for a while Hmm. puppet puppet is generous i I have seen this movie probably (laughs) significantly more than 10 times and yet this scene my mind refuses to retain it. <laughs> I really felt like I was on LDS, man. Every, every time I see it, I'm like, wait, what is going on now? Yeah. I, get, I get what they're trying to do, which is like, they're trying to make time the time travel thing be not normal. Like, yeah. and they always have like, they have to wake up, like it puts them to sleep yeah. and they have to, the breaking thrusters fire and all of that. I get it, but it, it's, uh, it's, it's weird. It's almost, I don't know. It almost feels like, will people take this seriously as a Star Trek movie if we don't put in some special effects? Better better do them here, because it's just San Francisco's for the next 60 minutes. So. <laughs> Probably can't blow up a whale. No. Yeah. Oh, so they, no. got, they got the weird kind of time travel hallucinations. It's not their best thing. It's not the best thing mm. in the movie. It's a strange thing. Um, I, I, I skip over it, too, like I did just there, because it's just like, I, I get to I that point, and I'm like, whatever. <laughs> That thing, Whatever. it haunts me. I like that they I like that they're playing sound from later in the movie because I think that's kinda that's part of their like, ooh, time travel. I think that part of it is kind of kind of hey, fun. L- let's use these newfangled computers to mm-hmm. to animate something that looks like doing life casts of people's heads. Yeah, exactly. They're like uh like they've turned into sand. Um so anyway, they they're they end up in, in the eighties in San Francisco and they park at Golden Gate Park and you know, they're oh the dialogue. Everybody remember mm. where we parked and in Golden Gate Park. This is a primitive culture. And this is mm-hmm. so this is the thing. This is one of the things that this movie does that's really great is it judges us. And so, you know, they're like it starts with judging from the amount of pollution in the atmosphere this must be the late 20th century right they're like a primitive paranoid culture we got to be careful ridiculous use of radiation yeah Yeah. exactly like they're they're very much like uh uh they look at a newspaper and they're like how did they survive this period and so that's a big part of this movie is the people from the future commenting on how primitive and awful uh everything about every aspect of modern for the movie in 1986 life is right down to dr mccoy complaints about the Spanish Inquisition when it comes to the finest hospitals in downtown San Francisco. Dialysis? <laughs> Give me a pill to grow me a new oh, yeah. kidney. I love Let's that lady too. get started on the Prime Directive in this movie. On the timeline, right? Like, uh, yeah, this, yeah. This, this is the reason that in that in that uh, in the Trials and Tribulations episode of Deep Space Nine, the guys mm-hmm. from Temporal Directives yeah. go, oh, Kirk, don't Kirk. get us started. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I suspect 
no paperwork was filed for this mission. <laughs> no, no, no. No, I, at the moment that, that struck me this time as being the most offensive is when Scotty is going to offer a, the secret of something that yes. hasn't been invented yet to the guy at the at the Plexicorp or whatever. God. And McCoy's like, well, well, wait a second. Like, that's going to totally ruin time. And Scotty's like, eh, he probably is the inventor of it. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's yeah. the most that's inexact fine. thing from, a, yeah. from a, an incredibly finicky, precise engineer ever, ever, ever. <laughs> no. It's well, like, eh, it's no, but fine. he's the engineer. He's got to solve the, His problem is is uh, transparent aluminum now. His problem is not timeline. <laughs> you, you, know, you guys fix true. that later. I'm yeah. here to fix this problem right now. Yeah, okay, I'm here to build a whale tank. I'm not here to preserve the timeline. <laughs> yeah, I will, I will <laughs> give any future information. Uh, you want the next 40 yeah. Super Bowl winners? I'll give that to you, too. I need a plexiglass <laughs> cage yeah, for whales but, now, please. We just hope that that nice little old lady who gets the new kidney isn't like a serial killer because that's yeah. going to be real right. bad. Yeah. Well, the hilarious thing for me is that, uh, you know, I re- I was a novelization guy. You know, we we haven't done the uh, incomparable episode about the novelization of Kroll yet, but I'm, I'm hoping for it. <laughs> uh-huh. But I, I devoured the Vonda McIntyre Surely just an oversight. Yeah. <laughs> David Lore will be on that episode, Chip, for sure. <laughs> something, something came up. It got pushed to next decade. Yeah, it's on the but, list. Uh, it's not on the this, list. This is one of those bits where fun, light movie making goes at odds with uh, fanish continuity. This must be right because Vonda McIntyre in the novelization for this thing spends a good page on Scotty explaining to McCoy that no, this really is the guy who yeah. invented transparent aluminum. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I, I watched an interview with Harv Bennett where they said, you know, people, we knew people were going to be annoyed by the time travel and the changes. So we just said, we'll point it out in the movie so that people won't bother us and we'll just deal with it that way by just, just saying, saying exactly. Exactly. That's the, and that's the And that's the way to do it, you know. Yeah, that's, it works. It's a lot more fun the way the movie does it. And there's some zany stuff in here too. This scene, and I probably pointed this out on a random trek, but I'm going to do it again, which is, what? this Never has the it. most random thing in the movie for me, which is they have, I believe it's one of their costume designers basically come comes in in the middle of it and the guy shouts not now Madeline, <laughs> not now, Madeline. and she leaves and it's that. like that's that's it it was just there because they want to show that this guy is having an experience right now where he's been shown <laughs> the future and yeah. she, then she comes in and he's like not now Madeline and she disappears and I looked it up and Madeline is yeah she's just like a crew member who they put in the show for fun. I, I love Madeline she winces and she yes. backs yeah. out of there and she backs out of there and it's like what's that oh all god about? he's yeah. Angry again. Mm-hmm. You can immediately you immediately piece together like what their work relationship is like, <laughs> well, right? He, he quits. She smoking, comes into the office without knocking. He screams yeah. at her, and she reacts like with discomfort, but also familiarity with yeah. this. And it's yeah. yeah. Madeline goes home to her partner. Yeah, Bob was shouting again today. I yeah. I, I, I think I'm going to find a new job because I can't. I want the Vonda McIntyre novel about. The in, in the, the uh, creation of uh, transparent aluminum and how it came. Yeah, well, to be. what's what's happening at Plexicorp? <laughs> the Plexicorp story. As time as time passes, I, whenever I rewatch this movie, now I think about you know the sham trial at the end of the movie, and there's got to be some like sub bureaucrat in Starfleet who's like, guys, guys, okay, I know that you guys love Kirk and you want to let him do whatever, but there's some timeline stuff we've got to deal with, and like, shut up, Gary. Yeah, that's right. You know what? He, they say <laughs> it's fine. He gets results. You stupid. <laughs> chief come on yeah you yeah. know i mean earth got saved whatever yeah, that's the the, the the challenge is is that you know they need to save earth 
Earth. You think they could take a little bit more time, but for some reason they're really rushed, even though they could return to exactly when they came Actually, from. that's one of the things that, that struck me about this, is the only ticking clock in this actually is the dilithium crystals. So the yeah. the timeline with, with uh, Uhura and Chekhov, their portion of the plot, where they have to go to the, find the nuclear vessels in Alameda, is mm. that they need to, like in 24 hours, they need to do it. The whales... Well, even, also the whales at the end. Yeah, the well, Kirk, so Kirk says, I could get any whales, I'd much rather have yours. So there's a ticking clock there, but really, mm. if George and... Not, not to put too fine a point on it, but if George and Gracie got harpooned... <laughs> You believe there are other there are other humpback whales they could get mm. right, but he would much rather yes. have theirs, and they save the day, I, and it's nice. I mean, but. I guess the argument is the longer we're in this time period, the more we are. Like, if somebody <laughs> fi- figures out that there's a Klingon bird of prey parked in this park, we are in trouble. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. That is the best cloaking device ever. We can cut some corners, but be, but really, you guys shouldn't be cutting that many corners. So there is a yeah, they're they're going to run out of money, and they don't have another set of glasses yeah. to sell. Yeah, they had a hundred bucks, so you know, yeah. is that a lot? A hundred nineteen eighty six dollars for what was it? Seventeenth century, eighteenth century? century glasses. But the I, I, he, Admiral Kirk got ripped off. I'm just going to say, well, it, it didn't the, have the lenses, Moises. Okay, the lenses were broken, but still, everyone remember where we parked. Apparently, this is not an area that anybody goes in Golden Gate Park because no. they would all be <laughs> so just banging into the invisible spaceship walks through there. Yeah. Well, I, I, the 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 big thing uh, that I think this says about Golden Gate Park is that they just kind of expect that nobody is randomly just walking across that that, that particular grass, right. lawn. They're just standing yeah. on the walkway. They don't. They I don't keep know, what the was that? What was that park like in the eighties? Like you Kirk know. went. You know what? Golden Gate Park. Nobody cares about it in the twenty third century. People probably yeah, still don't fine. care about it. It's fine. It's mm-hmm. fine. So, um, so the the different subplots. So uh, Sulu's subplot is very small, which is he has to find a helicopter. Which mm. which he does in San Francisco. He was born there. He was born mm. there. There is a there's a cutscene that's in the novel too, where where when he's walking, they're walking down the street, and and the the family comes out of the like plot product placement for Pacific Telesis and all of that. That there's a there's a cutscene there where he meets his the little kid is like his great grandfather or something like that. But that got cut out of the movie. I I, I really I really wish we had gotten more Sulu in this. And the yeah. only reason that I'm kind yeah. of okay with it is that we we hung the lantern on him saying, I hope we get the Excelsior. Right. And then he mm. ends up being the captain of the Excelsior. What I do like about the, the Sulu, he's not in it for very much in, in terms of what he has to do. But I like that that in this Sulu is very much treated while when he's on the Klingon ship and then when he's flying the helicopter as he's a pilot like that's his thing he fly you know he flew the Enterprise all that time like he's a pilot and so he's just gonna go get a helicopter and yeah okay that switch turns on the windshield wipers or whatever but like he's he this is his (laughs) thing and so you know that's his job is like can you acquire us a helicopter and he totally can because he loves flying whatever ship he figured out how to fly the Klingon ship now he's gonna figure out how to fly the Huey um, and uh, then he has to remember that he's not flying a Huey anymore when he gets back into the Klingon ship. It's a, it's a nice, it's a very, very small little arc for for Sulu. But I do like that it plays up the fact that he's a he's a professional. He's a really good pilot, and that's why he's got this job. <laughs> San Francisco. I was born there. I was born. It's very good. Uh, so so yes, Chekhov and Uhura have to go find the nuclear vessels in Alameda, which leads that there's that very funny scene where that is what I said in Alameda. In, what is in the height of 
the Cold War, but mind you, a Russian is standing in the street saying, where are the nuclear vessels? Yeah, Russian spies are fine now. We don't care about them. uh, Yeah, no, it's fine. Mm. Can can I say one thing that is not fine, though? What is not fine? Nuclear vessels is not a way a Russian would pronounce that word. It's a made-up Russian. It's a complete mistake. Yeah, Chekhov's accent is completely wrong. And and yeah. and Anton Yelchin, I, I believe, when he got the part, uh, it, you know, <laughs> he, as an actual Russian, he pushed back on it. He pushed back on it. Yeah. And was like, "This isn't how we actually say this." And it's like, like, "It's how Chekhov talks." Franchise. <laughs> and there, there's no way a current Russian would, but in 300 years, oh, yeah, oh, may, I see philological evolution. Interesting. Yeah. We don't like to talk about it. We do not speak of it. We do not speak of it, Captain. Um, anyway, so they they do that. I like that lady. I love the lady on the street where she finally is like, "Oh yeah, I think you went Alameda." And they're like, "That's that's what I said. I said Alameda. Why do they? Why does no one listen to me?" Chekhov is very upset. But they do make their way to Alameda and they uh, break into the lousiest security that you will ever get on a uh, on a nuclear vessel. Transporters are good for that. Yeah, sort they of beamed thing. in. They're yeah, beamed so. in. Yeah, okay, they're beamed in, and that part is good. But then they're hanging around a nuclear reactor for a while, stealing photons. <laughs> And yeah. then Chekhov, when he's captured, because Uhura yeah, they, beams they, out, you should close the door when you're interrogating. When you're interrogating someone. a Russian spy who is somehow broken into your nuclear vessel, and he can literally like throw his plastic phaser at you and run away, run out the back <laughs> yeah. door. <laughs> so yeah, not right. Pavel Chekhov was chief of security. He knows all in Star the Trek exits. One. Yeah. He is horrible. He is horrible at being a security guy. He is the world's worst interrogatee. Yeah. Yeah, although I, that that scene makes me laugh, where where he's mm. just like, uh, "No, you is like, is it you? I do not know your rank insignia yeah. is and all that kind of stuff." And he just takes his wallet with him, and he's like, "I'm not going to get interrogated. I am great yeah. chief of security. No problem." He keeps going around, and we're through. We're through. Okay, can okay, I go? Can now? I go now? What? I mean, um, I, I think that scene is funny, like just yeah, the dialogue yeah. exchange. But I am a little. You know, it's not great that it basically like lobotomizes Chekhov. Like he he, he should yeah. know turns of phrase like this, uh, and and not be as a uh, I don't know is not not as naive um, with talking to these guys. Yeah, they. Uh, it's like it's like a it's foreshadowing his head injury. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the effects of time travel. His, his head injury went back in time. That's, yeah. that's right. It hit so hard that it went back in time. But he he runs away, but then he falls, and they have to take him to a hospital, oh, no. and then and this, the plot all kind of joins back together then. The main plot is, of course, that Kirk and Spock go to Sausalito, to the Cetacean Institute, which is, it does not exist. Sorry, it's the it's the Monterey Bay Aquarium where they shot that. The, the Cetacean Institute, aside from having these whales, I, I find that most of the purpose seems to be having someone hosing off paper. Oh, yeah. You got to keep your sidewalks uh-huh. placed yeah. at the oh, yeah, Cetacean it's, it's a it's a known fact. It's, it's yeah. important to to host that yeah. down. I do like the realism of a, of a marine scientist <laughs> yeah, driving just, a beat up crappy truck. I like this. Like oh, yeah. for the day where where a person uh, who is a marine biologist in a terrible truck could afford to live in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> oh, science fiction. Um, <laughs> she, she lives in Oakland. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. She's got a long commute ahead of her um, after the after her uh, pizza dinner with uh, with Captain Kirk. So so they find that they find the whales and. And uh, it's a pair of humpback whales named George and Gracie. Mm-hmm. And Spock dives in to the whale tank because 
it's offensive that you would just assume that you could kidnap whales and take them to the future without mind right. melding with the whales and asking them, which is what which is what Spock does. He sought consent. Yeah. There's something very yeah, sweet. There's, uh, and maybe maybe Joe has thoughts on it. The shot when they first come down the stairs and they're looking at the whale tanks and it's it's all fake special effects shot. I something very unsettling to me about that shot. Like just the way the whales are placed, the way they just kind of seem to be like hanging there and they're like pointed right at the window. And it's just I don't know, like like it feels like the depth is all wrong. It, like there's something that looks at it like looking at it, it's like an optical illusion and it it hurts my eyes. As an addendum, prof- Professor Joe, is is that an optical effect? that they use there uh, uh, well so yes uh but they, it's okay. a they're, they're two five footish i think uh whale puppets that they had sitting in a tank um that they would film for this uh so the scale's not going to match when you're shooting that with certain lenses and then you're shooting your uh your on-set footage with other lenses um so they they don't really like sit in space correctly, but the bigger issue for me I think is like the matte lines around everything. Yeah. Um and the the black levels don't match. Um everything's like a cyan blue um in this tank and they're really uncontaminated by that uh in in the foreground. It feels kind of otherworldly like they're just kind of hanging there in space or something. They're space whales. They decided that the the save the whales plot which is you know w- would be great and very Star Trek and all of that and it's true but I, I know that they were concerned about the technical issues with the whales and it, it's it's an issue right? They have their mechanical whales and they have their whale puppets. I think most of the other stuff looks fine right? I mean it, and then yeah. they have whale stock footage which yeah. is clearly whale stock footage but I'm okay with yeah, it. Yeah yeah um, but it is you're right it does look it does look weird it, it, what i'm saying more is that this was the challenge is like thematically i think the whales are great but it did lead to lots of technical issues where they have to visualize yes, whales. we cannot imprison a fleet of whale actors in order to make this <laughs> no movie. there are none there would be a mixed mixed message there, there there are no whales in captivity at all which is one of the things that this movie kind of like oh no whale is ever born in captivity and they don't keep whales in captivity it doesn't happen like it just doesn't happen so i believe there was an animal rights group that uh, i don't remember which one uh, got upset uh at them for this movie and thought that they had done something to whales and it's like no no guys they're obviously puppets <laughs> the effects were not that good no whales no. were harmed the footage suggested that they were too close to the whales they were filming yeah. and they're puppets they're puppet, so. the whale puppets yeah. <laughs> whale puppets jason before we move on uh, was it did, did we have the punk on bus scene before this oh no or it, is, it, it is when they ride over so kirk, yeah kirk thatcher who is actually on the crew another crew person who is in this movie is the punk rocker on the muni bus that's going across the golden gate bridge um and as somebody who went over the golden gate bridge every day for uh 15 years i can tell you uh they shot all that stuff on the golden gate bridge it's very it's very accurate they they probably spent a lot of time going back and forth on the golden gate bridge to shoot all of that and they they do have the guy he's playing i hate you which is a song that kirk thatcher the punk actually that guy and a bunch of other people on the crew who who were in bands recorded that song because they were going to put some like rick astley song or duran duran song or something over that and they're like no 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 it needs to be punk rock and so they they created this song i hate you which is like a hilarious if you listen to the lyrics it's a hilarious like uh, meta punk rock song because it's yes. all this like i hate you and i berate you and uh, the only question is how many megatons i i think that's a really nice line it is both too awful to be real and also pretty accurate <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Yes. it's very much what so many wannabe punk bands try yeah, to I 
aspire to. The only to. thing that stretches the plausibility is uh, how discernible the lyrics are. So the, the mixing is actually too well done. The, the, uh, it should be drowned out. <laughs> I don't know if I approve of the fact that not only does Spock, so Spock is great to get consent from the whales to take them to the future, but a, a, a guy yeah. with a boombox boom box on, a, on a bus is enough to get the nerve pinch and uh, everybody mm-hmm. applauds when mm. the guy... Also, he, he gets nerve-pinched and then immediately falls on the like the volume on switch the stop perfectly. button On the stop yeah, button. But so. yeah, like for everybody else on the bus, literally, they just saw a guy get knocked out and they're like, yay! Because they don't... A bad person. It was a bad person punk. playing punk rock. Punk. It's very, yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to mention the punk on the bus. Uh, a couple of things about Kirk Thatcher. One, he, he played a punk on the street in Spider-Man Homecoming, which now I want to rewatch just so that I can find him in the movie. Uh, <laughs> Um, but he also wrote the screenplay to Muppet Treasure Island, <laughs> did a bunch of work with the Henson Company, and you know the, this 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 Netflix uh, show the uh, the curious what uh, the curious creations of Christine McConnell. Oh yeah, yeah, no. the the cooking show thing. Yeah, he, he's the executive producer of that show. He was on Dinosaurs. Like he he's done a bunch of stuff. Like he he did the voices of some gremlins in the first Gremlin movie. I this this is one of the things I love about this movie is a bunch of bit part actors have these ridiculously interesting filmographies. Yeah. Punk on yes, bus. And yet, in, a, in an interview I saw with him, he said, on my tombstone, it will say, Kurt Thatcher, punk on it, bus. On, on his own, <laughs> but it's on DB. Right? It says, if I won the Nobel Prize, I would still be be cited in my obituary as punk on bus punk from on Star bus, Trek 4. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> uh, it's great. I, I love that they they went to the trouble of doing a punk rock song to to put it on his boombox. It's I great. That's, I think that's very fun. Um so yes, yeah, so George and George and Gracie uh, get uh, the Vulcan mind meld, I guess, or one of them does, and and Gracie, and does. Gracie is yes, because we Vulcan, also find the Gracie is real talk. Uh, yeah, yeah, he's like, are you pregnant? <laughs> anyway, it's a cross. Thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, and so they have to befriend the whale biologist, who is Catherine Hicks, as Doctor Jillian Taylor. This is. Um, you know, this is her only appearance in Star Trek, but uh, it's a fun part as the woman who, as Scott said, I think earlier, um, really should not be interacting <laughs> with these strange men who come to the whale place and one of them yeah. jumps in the tank and then she gives them a ride back to San Francisco <laughs> and invites them to dinner because they're weirdos whose story doesn't yeah. line up. And then they tried to talk to a whale. It's like, why would you? Uh, heck, it was 1986. It was <laughs> okay. a different. Yeah, I was going to ask. I was very young in 1986, but how quickly could you go from I'm about to call the cops on you people to would you like a ride and some dinner? Would you like some pizza? <laughs> well, I mean, there, yeah. there is I, I, again, so, charming. There's some headcanon here, which very is charming. I kind yeah. of feel, feel like Jillian Taylor. She's an uh, she's an idealist. She yeah. wants to believe the best in people. Um, she's open to, you know, kind of uh, new ideas. I, I think she gets a vibe that there's something going something interesting going on with Kirk and Spock like they're more than they appear which they are right yeah, she's in like a crisis point where these whales are going to go yeah. away and like what does a whale scientist with no whales do yeah. right like her, and she literally later says like yeah I have nobody here so, <laughs> yeah, I, I have like I don't here. even have she, a pet cat let's she, go <laughs> she just she's so blatantly volunteers I have nothing here and the way that she fixates on that uh, on that made them extinct <laughs> statement of Spock's yeah mm-hmm. is something that that speaks to her character for me where it's it, she sees the extinction coming and when she finally gets the admission I, I think she believe she believes him more than she lets on when he says I'm from the future and everything because she wants to believe of an optimistic future where the planet hasn't been completely destroyed. Mm -hmm. 
and and there is a place for her that can actually give her something of a fulfilling life because she sees 1986 for the dystopia that it was. This is pretty liberal head canoning, but she's a whale scientist. She probably doesn't need to be giving the tours. They probably have volunteers or you know <laughs> that, interns who could do that. But she cares, right? Presumably, yeah. or or the movie doesn't understand how museums work. Oh, well, and I also think so. In her interaction with uh, Bob, the director, I feel like yeah. there's some uh, uh, Bob. Oh, there's, there's some problems with the supervisory <laughs> yeah. roles. Yeah. There yeah. and he's probably the, enough of a jerk. It's like you know what, assistant director, uh, you give the tours. You love your whales. <laughs> yeah, uh, Bob. Give the tours. Bob, uh, Bob looks like he's sympathetic, but then we find out he's actually a gigantic jerk who yeah. yes. who moves the whales yeah. out from under her because he's afraid she'll be. He says oh. he says all. Oh, I, I didn't want to you know you to see it because you'd break your heart, but it's really like I don't want you to get in the way and causing trouble for me because yeah, exactly. he is an accomplished middle manager who has figured out how to <laughs> fake sympathy and other human emotions in order to manipulate. Manipulate the people below him and get right. results. He is he is deeply entrenched in bureaucracy, where he will live and thrive for the rest of his days. That's right. And that and that is what in, in maybe in the novelization yes. Spock says after giving Bob a mind meld. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I like to say that you know people say that this movie doesn't have a big bad. I think Bob, Bob. is a yeah. big bad. There's even Bob's kind of great. There's kind of a line at the end where they talk about what ship they're going to get stuck on, and they're like, I, I'm not going to get it right, but like the eternal thing is bureaucracy. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yep. that's a, a bones line. But yeah, Bob, Bob is like, I, I totally respect you as a scientist, and I'm going to do this thing behind your back because you're so emotional. Because it's convenient for me to do that. That's so. right. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm that's your right. boss. Ultimately, your feelings do not matter. Yeah, that's right. I don't want your belly aching, and you're complaining about this. We're just going to go take these whales away without that's you. Right. But it, while that's all going on, actually, she is giving a ride to Kirk and Spock. <laughs> And she's in- interrogating them about their weird uh, where they come from, and you get the, the you know I'm from Iowa. Uh, later li- later he admits that he is from he only works in outer space, but uh, there, we get the whole <laughs> thing about he was in Berkeley because they're trying to explain why Spock is kind of uh, ditzy because Spock. Uh, we get the you know you you like Italian and I do too. No yes no yeah. yes. There's just a lot of zany. Uh, it's it's fun. It's fun banter where Kirk and Spock don't really know what the hell they're doing because they're apparently. Uh, completely out of their element, despite having done this a million times before. Yes, yeah. it, it is so unconvincing, and they so are clearly insane. And then Kirk <laughs> looks at her and he says, "Wouldn't you rather talk about this over dinner?" And she's like, <laughs> right. "Yes, well, Kirk. yes, I would." Right. He's very yeah. charming. He's got that twinkle. And when I say dinner, I mean you're paying. <laughs> <laughs> when I say you dinner, you're paying, and it's not really a date. And uh, I'm probably not going to give you the information you want. Sound good? It reminds me of the adjustment period that Kirk and Spock had in a piece of the action in the original series, you know, where it, it takes him a while to figure out how to navigate uh, things. But I also want to, uh, I really like Catherine Hicks's performance in all of this. And I think um, mm. she and Shatner have, it's not romantic chemistry, but they do have a nice little almost screwballish yeah, kind of that's chemistry. It. They that's they play it. off of each other really well. Yeah, it's a screwball screwball kind of thing and it's 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 fun. There's the uh you know why all the coy disguises, right? <laughs> like yeah. it's, it's it's wacky and uh and and fun. And I like that scene where they're at dinner where um, at the at the uh, Italian or like the pizza place, basically mm-hmm. that 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 she takes him and he doesn't know. And we get our we get our Star Trek product placement of Michelob. Michelob. And, and what I like about that is that then Kirk takes a sip of it and he gives it a look like, "What the <laughs> hell have you done to beer in the in the twentieth century?" That made me laugh. <laughs> so I was like, 
what is this? I'm also I'm also feeling really old because that scene, you know, I was there in real time. I remember what pocket pagers were, and mm. oh god, yeah, yeah. That uh, and the the waiter is Bob Sarlat, who is the he was the 49ers stadium announcer for a long time, and is a comedian in the Bay Area. Mm. And they obviously gave him a they gave a Bay Area person a little part in the movie, and he he's like, oh, I'll be right back with that. That's his one line. But I'm like, yeah, it's <laughs> Bay Area. There's your Bay Area cameo that you get there. He, he says, randomly. who gets the bad news? Um, so that's that's nice. Yeah. The uh, that's right. That's right. And they take their pizzas to go. Actually, one of the things that makes me laugh is that they, the, when they find out that the that the whales are being taken, they immediately have to leave. Um, and they're like, "Oh well, you, you might as well wrap it wrap up the food." Because I was sitting there thinking, "But what about dinner?" And then the thing that really makes me laugh is when Kirk gets out of the truck to get yes. beamed back to the spaceship. He brings his pizza, pizza box with him. <laughs> they still haven't eaten. Yeah. So I imagine that he like offers everybody a couple of slices of pizza. Mm. You shouldn't eat before your time warp. That's a bad idea. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. Well, they got to hit their uh, their spirits up before they go beam mm. some whales up later. So um, mm-hmm. before we go and and rescue the whales, we have to rescue Chekhov from the hospital, which leads us to the the uh, wacky hospital rescue scene with all the wacky music, where <laughs> where uh, they uh, they put they put Catherine Hicks on a stretcher and roll her in and and mccoy does his best like listen man she's got acute postprandial upper abdominal dissension which is she's got a tummy ache basically um and uh they get they get into the uh the operating theater and this is this is peak mccoy because now he's not only mad at like the world as he always is but he's specifically mad at the 20th century for their archaic (laughs) medicine um and uh, it's great. Like, ah, you can't drill a hole in his head and all that. And I love, there's so much good, because he's on his, he's in a hospital. So he, he he gives the lady the pill that grows her a new kidney. I wonder why he brought that with him and why it was in his bag. So incredibly <laughs> I, I just like head cannon, head cannon, it's a pill that fixes many things. Yeah, uh, it's just a yeah. nanite yeah. pill that you give yeah. people and it fixes all the stupid things. It that, also fixes like the Tullerian flu or something. Yeah, but, she's, you know, she's also going to regress in age to like age 40 <laughs> in the next couple yeah. of weeks. So, you know. Go figure. It's great. I, I really love his disgust too when he's inside the elevator. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, my god! Too smarmy um, uh, uh, residents or whatever. Yeah. yeah, those guys are probably violating HIPAA. Also, that's <laughs> <laughs> true. <laughs> it was pre-HIPAA. It was at the time. Oh, there was thank you. There were no Same. privacy regulations in 1986. <laughs> those guys are why HIPAA was brought into place. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> he says nothing, and then and then as he as he leaves the elevator, he's like, my. God, it's great. <laughs> I just I like how they don't actually have a, a plan, but they're just improvising a plan, oh, yeah. and it's fine, and it's fine, right? Like, let's wander around, let's look around, let's find this here. Jump on this gurney, this will be fine. I feel this that's is like a plan. that is like that is pinnacle original series Star Trek, yeah. right? Which is like yeah, we'll figure we, it like, out. Yeah, like we literally don't know enough about how anything works here to actually come up with a plan. So we're just, it's improvised. Also how Jillian somehow managed to get them <laughs> the exact kind of uh, OR specs that they, they uh, well, needed for this. Isn't that a nice She's moment? A is, we're going to need something to blend in. Cut to, they're wearing full doctor's yeah. outfits. How did that happen? No idea. You know, yeah. it's, not, it's not even like it's like party city or anything. Yeah, I don't know. She has a friend who works at a hospital supply store and they 
went there and she bribed him Gail, with a pizza. Gail, I need a set of scrubs. No, three sets of scrubs. It's, it's fine. I can't do this minutes. on my own, okay. Gail. I'm no Superman. Anyway, uh, anyone <laughs> reference? No, not acknowledged. Okay. Oh, no. Reference acknowledged. Okay, thank you. Then we'll move on. Yes. So, oh, they save Chekhov. It's fine. Uh, very funny. Uh, actually, I really, the thing that made me laugh this time that I had forgotten how funny it is, is that as they're rolling Chekhov yeah. down the, uh, yes. down the, the hallway in his, uh, in his, uh, uh, whatever that is, the little trolley that he's laying down on. He tries to sit up to see where they're going, and they're like, not now, Pavel, and they put his head back down. Oh, it made me laugh. But he finally does get uh, into the elevator with them, and, and the uh, the guards mm-hmm. chase them down to the first floor. And I just, I like that we open. have two they're chasings, and they're not, like, they're not the bad guys, right? Like, there's the, the army guys are chasing Chekhov, yeah. and they don't, they don't actually shoot him. He falls and hurts his head, and then they take him to the hospital, and then the cops are chasing him, and they don't get a chance to fire. So there's, there's these kind of chase scenes that are i don't know they're just they're very humane yeah, they're yeah, kind of they're both like they're both like running away from being caught shoplifting where one of them they're caught shoplifting uh you know nuclear isotopes and the other <laughs> one they're caught shoplifting a russian yeah and like no one like no one gets hit by a car no one presumably no one loses their job i don't know it just seems like <laughs> I don't know. Eh, you know sometimes a russian spy escapes your, your hospital what are you gonna do <laughs> some, some of those guards <laughs> but, may have, may lose but his, his, his 23rd century tech that he left them with on the on the ship yeah. um you know that that's another one of those timeline things where i'm like yeah. oh great he gave that to the military Yeah, but it, it was a, the phaser was out of gas so it's just gonna look like a plastic toy they're just gonna throw that out so <laughs> probably yeah, i do like that the only are. phaser shot that uh they use as just for welding that door lock right. um, with that cheap little spark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's like surprisingly little violence in this, right? We almost, a whale almost gets shot. A door gets shot. And like, you know, I kind of like that. Yeah. That's, that's, that's why it's a Christmas movie. Yeah. Tony. It adds to the kind of feel good. Like, yeah. It, it, for bong, any bong, and all bong, of the people bong, bong, who, bong, 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 bong. <laughs> who say that this, this movie is not Star Trek. I don't think they watched the same original series. I yeah. did right. because this is so T.O. OS. Yeah, it really uh, is. It, it really shows how little you need to actually lock phasers and even have the Starship Enterprise in most of yeah. your movie. <laughs> a movie that technically has the Enterprise in it is is the byline under the one with the whales. Yeah. It's like technically, yeah. technically the Enterprise is here. Just watch all the way to the end. Just watch at, <laughs> so. at the very at the very end. But yeah, there were comedy episodes of the original series, and they they. they did things on planets like this and it yeah totally is is into that and i like that i love those comedy episodes of the original series and we get that here they do rescue uh the whales that's the next thing they do they so they've gotten they've gotten checkoff back they uh take off uh uh by the way uh catherine hicks decides that she is going to ignore captain kirk and transporter regulations and all for transporter yeah. regulations. she doesn't know she, how transporters work. she has no idea how dangerous what that what <laughs> yes. she's doing is also yeah. it's kind of wasteful from an energy point of view that like everybody else walks up the ramp and kirk is like yeah. i'm not walking that up is, a ramp that has always I'm bothered me like yeah, yeah. you know well, it's uh, it's all very controlled because they beam from the hospital to outside of the ship instead of beaming right. into the ship uh, <laughs> just so that they could do this scene of them going up the ramp and then having uh, yeah. Kirk beam in again so she can jump on and then Prime it's like oh well, we have they didn't want her on the ship they didn't want her yeah, on the we ship have, we have right. no alternative <laughs> But um, but I think she makes some good points that uh, she, you know, you're going to need a whale biologist in the future and she doesn't have anybody here and she wants to be with her whales and all of that. And My lease is ending next month anyway. Yeah, that's right. So, do you, do you, you know how much credit card debt I have? My dog <laughs> yeah, died two months ago. I mean, yeah. 
I my student really loans to take do not get me started. That, that's so. going to be the sad thing is when she gets to the 23rd century and they, they show her how much credit card debt and student loan debt she now owes. After <laughs> they all don't that have time. money in the future, yeah. Jason. Oh, you forget right. money. We oh. don't have money in the future for us, future people. We have a whole system set up for collecting debt from, from people who have traveled here from other countries. How times, do you think we pay so. for this stuff? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's her uncollected debt yeah. Yeah. that brings down the economic system. Yeah. of yeah. the Western world oh. and why we stopped using money to begin yeah, with. Yeah, there is, you can draw a direct line between her unpaid student loans and the Bell Riots. It's, you know, <laughs> read between the lines, people. So so they do, uh, they, they, Sulu's got his uh, helicopter and he's put in the whale tank and they, they're ready to go. They recharge the dilithium crystals and all the nonsense of that and they've got the, the transponders for the whales and so they go to Alaska where the whales have already been dropped off in in the water, I guess there's there's a lot of logistics about how you move whales uh, with a giant a 747 and how you get them out of their tank and all that that we do not want to deal with because it's nonsense. It could this happen. is not a whale logistics movie, it, Jason, except for all not. the parts. Except for all the parts where it is a whale logistics exactly. movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that leads us to the moment where they're out in the open sea. Oh, but whalers are there in their longshoreman sweaters and their knit caps, and they're going to harpoon <laughs> our whales, and they must be stopped. Do they need this one last moment where the whales are in peril? I mean, I guess they felt like they did. I guess. But, yeah. I do like the harpoon hitting midair and falling. Uh, the harpoon yeah. hitting midair is great. I, I, the guy keeps spinning the wheel. Like, I don't know what he thinks is going to happen there. <laughs> he's, he's, tr- he's trying to turn the boat around. But yeah. Yeah. I know, but I mean, he just, keeps, it spinning. just keeps spinning. Like, I don't know. They're gonna, just going to go around circle? But I mean, I, I guess... This is the embodiment of the bad humans who are killing the whales. It's those it's two true. guys. They're the villains. And we got we to gotta see them. <laughs> it's and them they got to get spooked. And maybe they get a chance to rethink Bobby's their evil, whale, evil whaling li- lives now that they've been spooked by a UFO. I don't know. Well, how do, how do you think they knew where the whales were so quickly? Bob told Bob them. Bob told them. Oh, Bob sold them out. Mm-hmm. Bob is the true villain. That's in reading. At some point, uh, Jillian is going to look up all the people she left behind, and she's going to discover it's revealed that Bob was behind it all, and she'll be like, oh, "I'm glad he's Bob. dead." <laughs> <laughs> That's My only screen. regret is not killing him myself. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> time, I let time do it instead. Uh, and so they uh, they return to to uh, the future, but we do get some nice dialogue along the way again uh, with with Spock, where Spock has been concerned all along. Like, am I I'm going to have to kind of wing this a little bit? And McCoy is kind of giving him strange, grumpy encouragement, and uh, and. And Captain Kirk gives him some encouragement, and and McCoy has to explain that he he believes more in Spock's uh, seat of the pants guessing than in most people's uh, sure facts about how to do this. And Spock, you know, guides them to the future back back to in another nice time travel moment. I was thinking about Back to the Future uh, while watching this. A nice time travel moment is at the very beginning of the movie before they go back in time. They, they radio in and say that they're going to go back in time and there's that moment where the uh, the glass breaks at Starfleet headquarters and uh, and Brock Peters, who's the head of Starfleet says, get them back, get them back and you see Mark Leonard as Sarek looking out the window and then we cut to them on the bird of prey and they decide they're going to go back 
back in time. And then we get back there here, and it turns out, in a very nice little subtle sci-fi time travel touch, is that Mark Leonard looking out the window is, he's looking out the window at them returning from the past. And he goes, look, and they mm. are there, they've gotten back in time, They uh, the thrusters have fired and the autopilot took them under the Golden Gate Bridge or something, I don't know, and they land in the water and pop the hatch and let the whales escape, and yeah, everybody and splashes ends. around in frolics, and uh, they've succeeded in saving the whales. Yep, and in my memory, this is where the movie ends. <laughs> where that I saw like a TV edit of it, where like credits rolled over them, like you know, frolicking in the water. Because yeah, there is it's like really the end of the movie, right? Yeah, there's like 20 more minutes in a post-credit really sequence. Captain Kirk is found yeah. not guilty, except a boy thing where he's found guilty. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I like the scene where. Uh, she goes off on her own science mission and basically kind of like dumps him. Uh, that's cute. So that's the one. Yeah, it's, part that, that I like. bothers me in the sense that I feel like her whales are there and she needs to worry about it. But I, I think you know her argument is that she needs to get caught up on science for the last yes. three hundred years. I, I mean, mean, there's there's a lot of science implications here where they only have two whales. How do they introduce yeah. <laughs> you know three genetic whales, diversity? But Gracie well, yeah, is but like yeah, they they there are Two some things they got to figure out, and she is the only one who knows about whales, yeah. presumably. So I like that yeah. moment early in the movie where they ask, like, "Are there whales on other planets?" And they're like, "No, there aren't." <laughs> no. Like, ooh, that would, nope. that would be cool. He's a he is a Starfleet captain. He's not, you know, That's right. Captain Kirk is just exploring options. <laughs> there were yeah. all those mirror Earths that they ran across in the original series. There could be whales on there one of those. Yeah, mirror Nazis whales. on other planets. Sure, there are oh, whales. <laughs> oh man, you do not want to go to the world where it's like whales with whales with goatees and eye patches pirate whales no i like Uh, i like to believe that though like in the 22nd century they they sent way they sent dolphins to another planet for fun right and there are dolphins (laughs) in other planets if you're about to talk about sequest i'm leaving no (laughs) bridge your friend i like the the spock and sarek you know at the end oh yeah yeah vulcan Mm -hmm. uh you know saying hey glad you made it thanks dad you know, thanks, son. Live well, long and prosper. But well, and, and, and the moment of saying, like, you know, I opposed you doing Starfleet because because uh, this is the yeah. you know the weight of the journey to Babel episode of the original series where they yeah. don't even talk and they obviously have had this broken relationship and we've seen Sarek and Sarek goes uh, the extra mile in Star Trek three to help people uh who are trying to get his son back um and mm-hmm. here he has that moment with his resurrected son where he says basically in his most obstinate vulcan kind of way perhaps i was misguided about your entering starfleet he's doing as he mm-hmm. you know he, all he can bear to do to say i was wrong and that you uh that you were right about this and that your uh, your friends, your colleagues, your friends yes. are uh, are admirable people. Spock who says, you know, they're my friends and he's like, yeah. okay, you know, rolling eyes, friends, whatever. Like, I guess Vulcan is friend, not a word in Vulcan. Uh, I don't know. Well, it, it denotes but, an emotional attachment that uh, they have grown beyond. Yeah. yeah. But uh, they, have, they, have, they have family and co-workers. So. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that struck me just, you know, was that uh, Mark Leonard looks exactly the same as he has, like, pretty much since, you know, Journey to Babel. I know. And, other and than Spock the, looks other than the really gray hair. Old. Yeah, other than the gray hair. No, Mark Leonard aged uh, pretty well there over those, whatever, 20 years between this movie yeah. and the original series. Anyway, if you like Vulcans... That's a nice Vulcan it, scene. No, it's a that's a good scene, and and also just yeah, uh, how Sarek is still he's honorable, but also not not really a great dad. 
he's just a little distant, but you know, he's trying. He's trying. He tries. There. But he's like, yeah. uh, good job, I guess. Yeah. But I do like the fact that it, it, it closes the loop in the emotional journey for Spock when he says, you know, tell mother, he says, do you have a, any message for your mom? Right. And he's like, yeah, tell her I feel fine. And I'm like, oh, well, that's nice. Yeah. yeah. Which just like raised eyebrow, like, well, that doesn't make sense in Vulcan. He's like, look, she'll get it. Just don't. Just, just tell her. Mm-hmm. God, dad. <laughs> dad. <laughs> so these are all, these are all really nice moments. But we, like, like you said, Jason, you know, this is like... Harv Bennett, then Nick Meyer, then Harv Bennett. Yeah. And here we are in the thick of Harv Bennett stuff. And uh, there's so much continuity and there's so much trilogy wrap up yeah. and things like that. And it's just, uh, could it have been? Could it have been a post-credit sequence? Oh, this, the, no, the no, thing no, that no. everybody loves about this movie is the stuff that happens in San Francisco. But you can't just have a movie that's San Francisco and then none of the other setup or 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 resolution stuff for them. It, it does them them frolicking in the water at the end. It does feel like they could probably end the movie there, though. Um, I'm I'm okay that they didn't. I feel like this is one of those things where th- this stuff doesn't bother me because it, it's the payoff for the people who've been watching all these movies and they want to see what happens next and what's going to go on with Captain Kirk and all that. I think it maybe goes on a little long. Um, it is, you know, in the end, I think the, the real point of all of this is how do we get the series back to Captain Kirk and his crew on the bridge of the Enterprise? And but that's what this whole sequence does is get us to that point where he's captain again there's an enterprise again and they're going to go off although i have to admit uh and and this happened in 86 and this happened every time i watched the movie since then when uh you know scotty talks uh badly about the excelsior and they come up to the excelsior and then they go over it and find the enterprise there and i'm always like you know the excelsior is a pretty cool ship you could have just taken the excelsior <laughs> like no no it starts right nice. now the enterprise it's fine <laughs> Give Sulu the Excelsior, whatever. Well, this this movie does reestablish that core because at the beginning of Star Trek Two, they all had different jobs. Exactly, they're training people, and Kirk's got a desk job, and all all of that, and Chekhov's on the Reliant, and yeah. and it it is sort of you know it's sort of great for the basics of the franchise. If you if you look at the characters too closely, you know, you know. Sulu's career's been derailed. I mean, his 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 captaincy was edited out uh, of Star Trek II in the first place. Um, Scotty was promoted to captain of engineering or something. You know, basically, the end of this movie drops all of these characters under a big glass jar, um, and that really sets things up kind of poorly for the next movie when uh when, when it feels like they take all of the wrong lessons out of this movie but yeah mm-hmm. if you if 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 you look at it as just the conclusion of a trilogy of three movies it re- it, it does wrap it up on a nice pretty bow which just could they have stopped at star trek four do you think I really love Star Trek six. So, I mm-hmm. mean, to me, five, five is kind of the thing that you suffer to get to six, which in, in some ways, <laughs> it, it turns out you don't have to, you're allowed you to just watch, watch it. You <laughs> wait a minute. What? Hold on. Hold on. Hold. It, a funny thing. And I, I, I don't know if we talked about this when um, we did the random track episode, but um, one of my enduring memories of Star Trek four is actually walking out of the theater in my hometown after seeing it at age 16. Um, this is maybe the happiest I have ever 
left a theater feeling because so sorry chip to do this but like that ending not only was it a good movie but that ending is basically saying to a star trek fan like me um what adventures will they have next all our friends are back together there's a new enterprise they are off on new missions the you know the sky's the limit they are going to continue to be out there boldly going where no one has gone before and i remember seeing that and leaving the theater and being like that's so awesome like the movie was good and now the crew is back together doing what they love and what we love to see them doing and it's great now i think then about how um a few years later i was a freshman in college and star trek 5 came out <laughs> oh no we don't speak of that time <laughs> it's not the best not the best um mm. but uh but at that moment in star trek 4 th- and that that's why that stuff is there is is to put you know to have you leave the theater going oh it's star trek star trek is back together they put it all back together at the end after all the of enterprise that. is it, back etc yeah, yeah so it's it's the reset button is essentially what it is they broke everything and you know they killed spock in star trek 2 they destroyed the enterprise in star trek 3 how do they you know and then star trek 4 is about saving the whales okay save the whales but what about and I, I admit that it's franchise furniture moving, but I will tell you, as a kid who loved Star Trek and went and saw Star Trek Four, I was so energized by the fact that they got their ship back and they were all going to go on other adventures. Sometimes when you save the whales, you save Star Trek. <laughs> you know, as as reviled as Five is, uh, I, I, I had the same kind of feeling of there were new adventures to have, there were interesting things that would happen, and in novelizations and comic books, and in many of our imaginations, those additional missions yes, and exactly. great things that this crew got to go off and do, that's, that's one of the things that, even though, you know, we can't avoid knowing that the Final Frontier exists, um, I, I feel like there is so much more of that good, optimistic potential uh, that that's at the heart of Star Trek that that is where this movie leaves us. And I, you know, I, I feel like I feel like I'd, I'd be happier if they'd taken a bit of the exposition chin off of this more than chopped off the ending. The um, and, and also Star Trek six. If we do ignore Star Trek five, Star Trek six is basically we've been doing this a while um, and now we're about ready to to pack it in and this will be our yeah, last we're, mission we're and we're going to close it down and the implication there is between the end of star trek 4 and the beginning of star trek 6 there was another you know five-year mission where they had lots of great adventures we didn't get to see and i like that i like that that's out there and then and one not so fantastic adventure that we did get to see which is star trek 5 <laughs> yeah, and it brings the the klingons back too right so you, the the klingons are upset by this sham of a trial and then uh, they yeah. need K- kirk's help and he hates them and he wants them to die yeah and i i like the connective tissue between four and six of Admiral Cartwright, who I think once he he is uh, he is ousted in Star Trek six and exposed as a saboteur, uh, that he he abuses time travel, goes forward in time, and takes on the identity of Joseph Sisko and has yes. a son. Sure, yeah, more, more deep space <laughs> nine do. references acknowledged. I got it. I get it. I get it. Um, okay, so that is the end of Star Trek four. Any other final thoughts about this movie before we wrap it up? Now is your chance. Save the no, whales. double dumbass on you. <laughs> well, that's. Is there any other more quotable Star Trek movie? And I will say the answer to that is no. This is the most quotable Star Trek movie. <laughs> this is the most quotable Star Trek movie. So. <laughs> These are not the hell your whales. <laughs> yeah. Hello, computer. <laughs> Hello, computer. Oh, boy, that is so good. That gets better. That is a scene that gets better with time as computer interfaces advance because we're more and more in Scotty's position instead of the the 1986 Mm -hmm. people. And it's like a keyboard. How quaint. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. So I, I, it's got all these lovely moments. I think my favorite ones are the more subtle ones when um, when Leonard Nimoy just tosses off the the hell I, the hell I am. Oh uh, my god! Lines, you know, That's so good. That, that there, there's the broad stuff that everybody remembers, and then there's the subtle stuff uh, that even Shatner pulls off uh, from time to time. You know, when he's not when he's not mugging uh, outside the aquarium. Um, <laughs> you know, he Orient? he he. Actually, he actually does pull off some nice, uh, almost suave stuff there. Um, I, th- those are my favorite moments. I think that I think that pizza eating scene with him and Catherine Hicks is a really nice scene where he's trying to get get across, you know, without revealing who he is, and I, I, it's fun. It, it's it's very much more that. TOS Kirk than William Shatner Kirk. Where I I, I don't know if that makes mm. sense, but I, I've seen a delineation throughout his performance as the character as there are movies and phases of him playing the part where he is playing the part the way that he originally played it, and then the way that he plays him in the Final Frontier, where it's I'm Bill I'm Bill Shatner who happens to be Captain Kirk. Well, I wish you know in graduate school. I could have gone to see Star Trek four instead of the name of the Rose, which was also good. Um, but, uh, not as fun. Yeah. So you, but you approve now, Gene. No, I, I approve and I give past me, um, permission to go see Star Trek four. <laughs> oh no. Uh, that that the the you, might as well, you might as well tell past you how to make transparent aluminum. <laughs> <laughs> right, you, you, you probably wrote Star Trek four. <laughs> <laughs> How do we know she didn't? <laughs> they do have very highbrow literary references to Jacqueline Suzanne and Harold Robbins. Ah, the Giants. And, oh, the Giants. Ah, the Giants. yeah, that's, that, that's exactly that kind of moment that I just adore. Yeah. Much, much like Tony, I've seen this movie countless times, and I know exactly what's going to happen, and yet I laugh before it it's happens, so, yeah. you, it makes while you, it's it happening, makes you feel and happy. after it's happening. <laughs> You know, that's. I think that that contributes to the. Look, I'm a cold-hearted curmudgeon, but every now and then it's nice to watch something that brings some joy into your cold, stony, lifeless heart. And why not watch Star Trek Four for those moments? Because that's that's what makes it a holiday movie. Is you're just gonna feel better. You're gonna feel good. Plus, uh, yeah, yeah, it's just a warm, fuzzy. Uh, also, thing. what's the problem? Do you hate whales? <laughs> no. <laughs> watch the goddamn movie. <laughs> wow, bones. Is that, are you okay, bones? <laughs> I just wanted to give you something to edit it's there. It's like a <laughs> Spanish Inquisition. Uh, all right. Well, Star Trek Four. It's a good movie. It's got the whales in it. Everybody likes it, except for people who don't like whales, and we're not going to talk about them in this episode. They, sharks. Sharks mainly. Sharks are... Uh, yeah, there you go. To hunt a species to extinction is not it's logical. It's not logical. Thank you to my guests for being here. Joe Rosenstiel, thank you. Whoever said the human race is logical. Why says Chuyon, thank you. Excuse me, would you mind stopping that damn noise? <laughs> Scott McNulty... Thank you. Is that a lot? <laughs> Chip Sutter, thank you. I love the incomparable, and so do you. <laughs> yes. Uh, Gene McDonald, thank you. Thank you for having me. And Tony Sindelar, thank you. Well, 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 we meet again. <laughs> Jesus, no. Thank you for having me. Goodbye, nerds. And thanks to everybody out there for listening to this episode. We will see you next week. Not now, Madeline! Madeline!